Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. We're continuing today our series of messages on the life of Abraham as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 12 through 22. This isn't all of his life, but it's the beginning of it. It's a journey of faith in which he learns to take some steps of depending upon God, the one and only Yahweh. God led Abraham out of the Mesopotamian city called Ur and brought him into the land of Canaan. And he began to live in a place called Hebron, where he is beginning to, becoming very wealthy, by the way. And he is making some allies with some of the native residents of that region. Now, last week we saw in chapter 13 how Abraham had separated from his nephew Lot because both of them had such large herds of cattle that the land could not support both of them. And so they had separated. So Lot chose to go east toward the Jordan Valley, which was very fertile. And Abraham went west and he settled in the place called Hebron. Lot continued to travel east and south, drawing ever closer to that wicked city of Sodom, which is located on the southeast part of the Dead Sea, but it's still in the land of Canaan. Now you can see some of these locations on a map there. You can see where Sodom is and where Hebron is. You might also notice where Salem is, which later becomes the capital city of Jerusalem. Now while Abraham is thriving in Hebron, Lot is sinking into a very wicked and dangerous situation in Sodom. So chapter 14, which we will read in just a minute, gives us the first part of what is happening and it continues this story. We're not going to read the first part of chapter 14 because if you look at it, it's filled with all kinds of very unpronounceable names and places. It's just unreadable. <laughs> But let me give you a resume of what those first 12 verses are. Four kings from the Tigris-Euphrates River's Valley in Mesopotamia, which is in present-day Iraq, they have joined together in a military alliance. And they have come as far as the region of Canaan in the valley of Sidon, which is just south of this Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And they had conquered this region, and five of the kings in that place south of the Dead Sea were now paying tribute to these four kings up in Mesopotamia. And for 12 years they had been doing that. 
as subjects to the people of Iraq, if you please. But in the 13th year, those five kings in southern Canaan there decided this was enough and they revolted. <laughs> but the kings of Mesopotamia didn't like that at all. And so they return to the area and they destroy a lot of cities and they reconquer these five kings in southern Canaan. They plunder the land, they loot their wealth, they take their herds of animals and they start then their long journey back towards Mesopotamia, taking with them all of the loot and all of the animals and a lot of the people as slaves. And among those people captured was Lot, the nephew of Abraham. So this is the background of the chaos in Canaan. And it sets the stage for the next step of Abraham in his journey of faith. Now there is one man who escapes from this war zone, and he comes and he tells Abraham what has happened. And so we pick up the story now in Genesis 14, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. As you read this, I want you to notice that it reveals to us how to become a faithful servant of God. What, when I say a faithful servant of God, what comes to your mind? What, what does he do? What, what would she do, be like? How do they help others? How do they serve their master? I think we would agree that they're people who serve, they help others in need, they are trustworthy, they are dependable. A faithful servant 
gives his master the honor that he deserves rather than taking it for themselves. I think in this story, Abraham is a model of a faithful servant of God. And I want us to learn at least three characteristics or uh, ingredients of what it means to be a faithful servant of God. And you may be surprised by some of these characteristics. For example, the first one we notice in this story is that a faithful servant courageously, without fear, helps others in need. Now we see that principle played out when Abraham takes swift and bold action to rescue his nephew Lot. This is in verses 13 through 16. Apparently, this chaos and war that had been going on in southeast Canaan did not touch Abraham. Though that stuff that was in the first 12 verses doesn't seem to be affecting him where he is. He's living at peace in Hebron and enjoying the land and beginning use, getting used to living in the land that God has promised to him. And it says even back in chapter 13 that Abraham has built an altar there at Hebron and he worships this God who he now serves, Yahweh. In chapter 14 then, in verse 13, we learn that he has established some kind of an alliance with some of the native residents there, three brothers named Mamre, Eshkol, and Ener. But notice Abraham's swift action when he learns from the escapee from the war that his nephew Lot is in grave danger. In one sentence, he hears about it and he mobilizes his recruits. He recruits his allies, the Mamre and Eshkol and Aner, and he mobilizes his men. It says that he had an amazing 318 men in his own household, people who served him. Now that means that he was a very wealthy man because this isn't all of his household. These are just the men who have been trained as shepherds and people who take care of his wealth, and they've been trained with a slingshot and with a sword, as many of the shepherds were in those days, so that they could defend the flocks and defend themselves. These were men who were trained, and he had a lot of them. Although, as we see, he's going up against an army of four different kings. And then Abraham travels with these allies and his trained men, and he immediately takes off, and he goes a hundred miles up to the north part of Canaan, where these four kings are escaping, up near Dan, and there he overtakes those four kings, and he's very clever. <laughs> you see, 
Abraham, he's sort of a shepherd, but he's not bad as a general of an army either. He cleverly divides the men that he has, and then he attacks from many sides these, the army of these four kings, and he defeats them soundly. We don't know much about that battle, but it was a great victory. And he didn't stop there. He pursued those defeated armies for another 40 to 50 miles, clear on up into Damascus. I mean, he literally chased them out of Canaan. And then he took all of the plunder that they had taken and all of the cattle that they had taken from Sodom and Gomorrah, including the women and all of the other people, including Lot, and he brings them back into the land of Canaan. And he returns to the land of Canaan with all of those spoils and uh, liberated people, and he comes to the Valley of the Kings, which is near Salem which later becomes the capital city of Jerusalem. Abraham does a very daring thing. I mean, there's a lot of risk in taking just 300 men and going out to defeat and do battle with four different kings and their armies. But he doesn't hesitate a minute. He could have lost this war, you know. He could have been killed or taken captive himself. And what would that have done to the plan of God to make him a great nation and give to his descendants the land of Canaan? He took a great risk. He had great courage as he went out to rescue his nephew Lot. Now think about it. Where does courage come from? Where do you get the boldness to take the risk like that? It comes from faith. Faith. And faith is believing in the promises of God. It's faith that fuels our courage. And more specifically, Abraham was counting on the promises of God to him, and that's why he had the courage to go out and do this battle in the name of Yahweh. He believed strongly that somehow God was going to give him that land and to his descendants, and they would become a great nation. Courage is the fuel is fueled by our faith, and our faith is focused on the promises of God. A great service we do for God is when we reach out and we rescue people, and we mentor them, and we help them to grow, courageously helping those in need. And this is tied directly to our mission statement as a church. Life point exists to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people 
with the gospel. We seek to persuade them to come to Christ. And when they do, we work with them and train them to be faithful disciples of Christ, who in turn will make other disciples. But we have the courage to do that because we believe the promises of God. We're not stepping out blindly. We boldly and courageously reach out to those who are in need because of the promises of God. This is what a faithful servant does with courage fueled by faith in God. We have to take another th note here. When Abraham comes back into the land, he stops in the Valley of the Kings, which is just east of Salem. It's a valley right close to the city of Jerusalem. And we hear, see here another aspect of Abraham as a servant of the Lord. He generously and sacrificially worships God with his resources. We find this in verses 17 through 20. It seems strange, doesn't it, that in these verses, nothing is said about Lot. I mean, he's just been rescued. His life has been saved. But he, he doesn't say anything. We have no clue. What was it like when Abraham met up with his nephew again after I don't know how many years? And we don't know. Lot doesn't seem to say thank you in any way, which may be typical and indicative of where he was spiritually. We don't see that Abraham tried in any way to stop him from going down to Sodom and change his, the direction of his life. <clears throat> but this story is not about Lot. It's about Abraham and his faithful service to God. So in these verses, 17 through 20, we are introduced to a very mysterious person. It is the king of Salem. And he's also a priest of the Most High God. His name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is mentioned only three times in the whole Bible. In these couple of verses here in Genesis chapter 14, <clears throat> again in Psalm 110, and then in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapters 5 and 7. But Melchizedek, even though uh, this brief uh, account on history, becomes a very important figure in Jewish history and in our Christian theology for several reasons. He is related in the Old Testament to the promise of a king and a Messiah. And in the New Testament, he becomes the promised king and the priest of our redemption. Now, it's sort of complicated, so let me just res make a brief resume of what we learn about this mysterious person, this priest and king of Salem named Melchizedek. First of all, he has no ancestry, and he has no end or death, at least as far as it's recorded in the Bible. 
And Psalm 110 declares that he therefore is a king and priest forever. He also is a, a worshiper of Yahweh, the God most high. And this is very unusual because I thought Abraham was the only one who knew this new one and only God, Yahweh. But amazingly, there's now at the, in the city of Salem a priest and a king who also worships him. And it's this God, this Most High God, who has appointed him to be the priest and the king of God, according to Psalm 110. And then Abraham pays tithes to this priest and king. Paying tithe to somebody in those days was an act of submission, an act of respect, and pledging allegiance to somebody that is superior to you. And so when Abraham does that, he's declaring that this Melchizedek is his superior and that he is honoring him. And by implications, it means that Abraham and all of his descendants are therefore paying homage to this superior king and priest. And Hebrews points out, it means that even all of the descendants of Abraham, including Aaron and Moses, also were paying respect to this superior priest and king, Melchizedek. This is important also because in Hebrews it says, Jesus is the king, the promised one, after the order of Melchizedek. And why is that important? Because you see, Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, and Judah is the lineage for the kings of Israel. David and all of them coming down to Jesus. So Jesus is the king, but he is also the priest. And no priest had ever come from the tribe of Judah. That was reserved for the tribe of Levi. So now he, they're saying in Hebrews, but Jesus is not a priest after the order of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a tribe of Judah, but he's also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is the priest and the king after, after the order of Melchizedek. He's appointed by God to reign and to bring judgment on all creation. So this event in Genesis 14, in the Valley of the Kings, outside Jerusalem, with the king and priest of Salem, has great symbolic significance for us. And Melchizedek does two very important things. First, he brings out a royal feast for Abraham as the victor over the enemies of the land especially the fact that he offers Abraham and all those with him, not just bread, but wine. And in those days, to offer wine was, it meant that this was royalty. And he's honoring Abraham. 
And secondly, Melchizedek blesses Abraham in the name of Yahweh, the Most High God, in verses 19 and 20. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor or the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He makes it very clear that it's this God Most High who has delivered him. And he introduces to us, <laughs> there are a lot of firsts in this, the name, a new name for God, El Elyon. And it means the God, the one who is most high. He is above all of them. He is superior to any other gods. He is unique and he is one, there is no other like him. Abraham has been very courageous and he's gone out and won a battle, being very clever about it, but Melchizedek makes it clear that it was not the might or the intelligence of Abraham that won the war, it was God Most High. Abraham doesn't say anything to all of this. You don't see any words of Abraham. But he does something extraordinary. He takes a tenth of the spoils he has gained in his victory, and he gives it as a tithe to Melchizedek. And here again is another first, the first time tithes are ever mentioned in the Bible. It comes centuries before Moses instituted tithing as a part of the governing laws for the worship practices of Israel. In the day of Abraham, Giving a tithe was a gesture followed by some of the people of that region to show their allegiance and their devotion and their respect to some god or some leader. And Abraham here is doing an act of worship, declaring his respect and his allegiance to the god Yahweh, the Most High God. He's not giving it to Melchizedek. He's giving it to God. And it must have been worth a lot. Hebrews makes it clear that it, this is a tenth of the spoils that he has brought back. And the spoils are from five kings down there in Sodom, Gomorrah, and every, all these herds of animals, and all of the plunder, and the spoils that he had, they had taken, and all of the, the people that he had gotten. This was a lot of money. So when he gives a tenth of it, it's a big deal. He's giving sacrificially to the king of Salem, to the God of the king of Salem. It cut into his pocketbook. It touches the resources of his life. Worshiping God, for us in this country, we can do it freely, but it should never be free. When we worship God, we should worship him 
sacrificially. You know, it's easy to come and sing three hymns in the morning and pray and listen to the sermon. <laughs> Maybe that's not so easy. But it really doesn't cost us very much. We can go home and uh, it hasn't cut into our pocketbook. It doesn't change anything in our bank balance. It doesn't hurt us very much. And such kind of casual worship is not the kind of worship that Abraham engaged in. He sacrificially honored God by giving 10% of his resources, of what he had received, to the God that he adored and he served. Faithful service to God means that you worship God generously and sacrificially with everything you have received. Finally, a faithful servant wisely refuses to accept the success and the profits of this world for any service he has done for Christ. Abraham was a faithful servant of the Most High God because he refused any kind of profit from what he had just done to rescue his nephew Lot. You see, at this place in the Valley of Kings, there was another king. It was the king of Sodom. King of Sodom named Bera. Now, he had been defeated. He was the one who had lost everything. He had been rescued and brought back. And Abraham had rescued him. And according to the traditions of that time, the victor was the one who was supposed to get all of the spoils and all of the people. And so in a way, the king of Sodom really belongs to Abraham. But he, king of Sodom is here, I think, so he can sort of negotiate maybe some kind of a deal so he can get back some of his people and some of the, the, the loot and the prosperity of the cattle that he had and lost, and now that Abraham has rescued. And can you imagine what he's going through his mind when he's there and he sees what Abraham does? He watches with horror. He can't believe his eyes that Abraham just gave away 10% of all of his goods and his profits and gave it to the king of Solomon. Wait a minute, those belong to me. No, they don't, king of Sodom. They're not yours. But Sodom, the king of Sodom comes up in anger and frustration. He shows no respect whatsoever to Abraham. And he says, give me the persons, but take this, the spoils for yourself. I mean, that's a very rude, disrespectful kind of way of talking. He doesn't thank Abraham for saving him from certain slavery and maybe even from death. He simply demands a settlement to which he's not really entitled. And so Abraham very firmly responds to him. And he says... I have lifted 
my hand. That means he's taken an oath. To the Lord, that means Yahweh, El Elyon, the Most High God, possessor and creator of heaven and earth. He's taking an oath in this one and only God he serves that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Verse 18. Now, Abraham does add, he said, I, I will take enough whatever I've used to feed my men and the army that has gone with me to do, for this victory. And I, he says, and I ask you also to give the fair share to these allies of mine, uh, uh, Memre and his brothers. But for himself, Abraham re refuses to accept any kind of profit whatsoever. He will not make his service to the Lord and result in rescuing Lot as an enterprise for profit. His service to God was an act of faith in the God who would keep his promises. He would not turn it into a project of commerce for gain. You know, one of the hardest realities of the church in North America is the commercialization of the church. Church has become big business. Some key megachurches function as distribution centers for religious goods and services. And so we now have what I could call the Walmartization of evangelical Christianity. In this economy, if a church is successful, that means growing in numbers, the way the marketing agents read the church leaders have done it, then they can package their success and they can market it to other churches and their leaders. And there are many churches in our country who have bought their goods and their services from Willow Creek and Saddleback and other such mega churches. The standard economic measure, such as attendance and numbers, budgets and buildings, remain deeply ingrained in our thinking about church success. But the image of a faithful servant in the New Testament is very, very different from this lucrative, profitable commerce of the church. Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what he says. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times 
I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I have been shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. As we launch into our vision for the church in the next four years and beyond, we must be very careful not to make this an enterprise of projects in which we measure our success by numbers and popularity. Our success in this vision is measured by people, people who are changed into Christ-likeness, people who think and act and become like Jesus. That is how we measure our success. Our success is not a building is not building a new community park on the back lot, or establishing a kitchen to feed the homeless, or paying off our debt. Don't misunderstand me. Those are very important projects. But they are important only as they help us to reach people and transform them into the image of Christ. These projects are only good because they help us to accomplish our goal of people, winning, transforming people, mentoring them, discipling them. So we must keep our eyes on the goal of rescuing people and mentoring people, not on attracting great numbers and projects. Like Abraham, we must wisely refuse to serve God in order to gain worldly profit. There is a verse in the New Testament which summarizes this all very well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're going to have our communion service now. 
And as we come to this time of communion, I want us to make it a time to reflect on these points that we've just talked about, of what a faithful servant of God really is like. A faithful servant courageously without fear reaches out to help others in need. Ask yourself, do I measure up? Do I look rather for ways not to talk to people? Do I find excuses not to get engaged with them about their spiritual life? Do I try to avoid that by getting involved in some project where I don't have to deal with people? Gener a faithful servant generously and sacrificially worships God with his or her resources. How do you worship God? Does it cost you anything? Is there a bite to it? Or do you just come and sing the hymns and say the, follow the prayers and the message and go home totally unchanged? You wisely refuse to accept the success and profits of the world. How focused are you on people? Do you measure your involvement in the church by how many committees you're on and how many projects you serve? Let me challenge you, focus on praying for your neighbor. Focus on people and look for opportunities where you can share your faith with them. And I want you just to reflect how do I measure up as a faithful servant of God? Father, work in us today that we might become more faithful in our service to you, that we might be courageous as we trust in your prom promises to reach out to people who are lost, who need you, that we might be counted trustworthy representatives of the one holy God. We pray in your name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.